Hello, I'm uh, Silvio Borcescu from Mensana Center and uh, we'll get uh, straight to our presentation. Well, Bernard Marx woke up one morning feeling rather down. The relationship with his girlfriend was not going that well because of some fidelity issues. He felt down, sad, pessimistic, so he reached for a pill. A pill called Soma and everything all of a sudden changed. He no longer felt sad, his girlfriend's infidelity did not matter anymore, all his pain was replaced by contentment or happiness. Well, what is Soma? Soma is a substance which in a dose of half a gram can wipe out for one whole day any unpleasant emotional state, restoring euthymia, feelings of well-being, self-confidence, optimism, and so on. One gram would be enough to make you feel like you spent the weekend into some tropical paradise. Two grams enough to make you feel for a whole week that you are on a vacation in some distant exotic land where everything is new and exciting. And if you take three grams, you'll feel like you are in a completely different universe with the different laws of nature, different landscapes, different forms of life. And the best part of all, Soma is perfectly legal sold even in coffee shops, has no bad side effects whatsoever, does not lead to addiction. Some of you might be saying, hey, wait a minute, I know Soma, I took Soma, it did not do anything close to what you are describing. That is because you are thinking about Soma, generic name Carisoprodol, a medication marketed since 1959 by Meda Pharmaceutical, a Swedish company. The Soma I'm talking about is a drug mentioned by Aldous Huxley in the novel Brave New World, published in 1931, a science fiction slash social commentary novel describing an imaginary society on our planet in the year 2540. So no need to start looking for Soma since the Soma I am describing does not exist, has not been invented and is unlikely that it will ever be invented. invented. But if there are uh, such uh, medications like Soma, then uh, Soma would be an ideal psychoactive substance. It does only good, it makes you feel great, there are no strings attached. Soma makes you see the reality in a in different light, in a more positive light. But what is reality after all? Plato had an interesting concept of uh, reality. He believed that only a few chosen minds can ever get to know reality. Most of us live like in a cave and all we see from the outside world is shadows on, a wall of, on the wall of the cave. In my opinion there are no chosen ones. We all live in this cave. Nobody has access to the outside world and in fact the outside world is not knowable since all access we have to this reality is through, through an interpreter and this is our brain. So reality cannot be known, but uh, we have a pretty, pretty good interpreter, the brain. The brain law though, um, while pretty uh, sophisticated as, a, as an organ, it still functions according to the same biological laws that we are trying to little by little understand. Like any other organ is susceptible to outside chemical influences. Even though the brain is defended like a citadel by some sort of rampart, like a fortress, it is not impenetrable. The evolutionary forces made it in such a way that uh, since the brain is the command center of the individual, it must be protected. 
even more than any other organ from disruptive influences coming from outside. This is done by the blood-brain barrier. What it means is that all through the central nervous system, the blood vessels that supply the oxygen and nutrients to the brain are lined up by special cells that are so closely bound together, they do not allow uh, most of the bigger molecules to go through into the tissue of the brain. While this barrier is like nowhere else in the body, it is still not strong enough to make the brain unreachable by certain substances that can influence its functioning. So there is this loophole in the blood-brain barrier and uh, all sorts of substances can take advantage of it. Getting into the brain and altering the functioning of the neurons either in a positive way, in a negative way or both positive and negative. This is the basis of the existence of uh, psychoactive substances which are defined as molecules that can penetrate in the blood-brain barrier and alter the current functioning of the neurons. Psychoactive substances influence the neurons in uh, numerous ways. This process can be understood if uh, one has at least a rough idea uh, about how uh, the central nervous system works. I'm going to give you some uh, basic information about this and uh, in the same time this is going to be a demonstration while all the presentations I have made so far come with a disclaimer warning everybody who sees them that medicine is a very complex field and taking medical decisions based on too little information can be very dangerous. Even if the information is accurate, you need to not, uh, not just accurate information but also complete information. This presentation barely scratches the surface of what is needed to make medical decisions. Uh, since it's meant to be uh, an initial brief orientation to this complex topic, uh, that should be pretty, pretty okay. But uh, uh, let's see, the central nervous system is a vast mass of neurons. These are little cells that communicate with each other by spraying each other with chemicals called neuromediators. A neuron that is stimulated with, uh, will generate an electric current that will run along its membrane all the way from dendrites, to the, uh, which are the receiving end of the neuron, to an outgrowth called the axon. At the end of the axon, there are little buttons containing tiny vesicles full of molecules of neuromediators. neuromediators. These vesicles burst once the electrical current reaches them, releasing molecules into this little space between the terminal buttons and the upstream neuron. Uh, sorry, the terminal buttons of the upstream neuron and the membrane of the next downstream neuron. The membrane of the downstream neuron contains on its surface proteins called receptors. These proteins float, so to speak, in the double layer of lipoproteins that is the neuronal membrane. Once the neuromediator latches onto the receptor, the next neuron will be modified. And often, but not always, a new electric wave will be generated which travels through the downstream neuron to the next one, and so on. To have an idea of the complexity of this process, you must know that there are hundreds of types of neuromediators. Each of them act on uh, several types of receptors. Each interaction between neuromediators and their corresponding receptors 
lead to several different responses depending on which part of the brain this interaction takes place and also what other factors are present while this interaction happens. After having their intended effect on the membrane of the downstream neuron, the molecules of neuromediators are mostly reabsorbed by a vacuuming action by the very same neuron that uh, issued them. A small number of neuromediators that participate in this transaction just leak into the extracellular fluid where they are attacked and dismantled by the enzymes speci specialized in cleaning up this workspace. So this communication does not spread into the neighboring neurons, creating confusion. So uh, what happens as a result of this interaction between neuromediators and their receptors? Some neuromediators influence the balance of ions between the inside and the outside of the downstream neuron. That leads to the downstream neuron either triggering itself a new electrical wave or on the contrary, it may become even more quiet, more refractory to becoming excited. Other such interactions can cause changes in the protein synthesis that goes on inside the neuron. Furthermore, others can cause some changes in the way information in the genetic material inside the neuron is read and used. As you see, the process is extremely complex and there are researchers who spend a whole career on the study of a single neurotransmitter. But this is not what you really need to know if you want to have just a rough idea about psychoactive substances. So let's proceed. There are many substances that either occur naturally or are synthesized by people that can penetrate the blood-brain barrier and influence the functioning of the neuron. Some of them are uh, uh, very familiar and rather benign, like coffee and tea and chocolate. Others are very familiar but not so benign, but rather destructive in their effects on the brain, like nicotine, alcohol. And uh, some are uh, dangerous enough to be outlawed, like genuine traps that can snarl unsuspected individuals. These are substances like marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, LSD. Some are mixed, dangerous, but in some circumstances useful, like opioid pain medications, hydrocodone, oxycodone, for uh, benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax. But uh, we are not going to talk about all psychoactive substances, but jump straight to the smaller group of psychoactive medications. These are substances that try to correct some kind of defect in the functioning of the neurons of the central nervous system. These defects usually result in symptoms of psychiatric illness. We are going to systematize these medications in five big groups. One, antipsychotics. Two, antidepressants. Three, anti-anxiety medications. Four, mood stabilizers. And a group five, miscellaneous. As a general idea, these medications never stay nicely in their own little cubicle, in their own little pigeonhole. They really cross any system one might use to classify them, often addressing more than their narrow class definition. And type psychotics, for example, are routinely used as mood stabilizers. Antidepressants are routinely used as anti-anxiety medications. And new usages for antidepressants are discovered all the time. Another general idea is that um, 
uh, I can, uh, that I cannot stress enough, psychiatry is no longer some kind of separate field, more or less connected with medicine like it used to be in the past. All the characteristics of psychiatric illness and psychiatric treatment are almost identical with the characteristics of physical illness and their treatment. In fact, psychiatry collapsed into medicine long time ago, pretty much uh, starting with 1970s when, uh, uh, when the progress of neuroscience made it possible for this biological view of psychiatry to take hold. We can say that uh, psychiatry is a little more difficult than any other field of medicine because it involves a higher level of uncertainty. The diagnosis is still mostly based on subjective descriptions of the illness, but uh, in a way it's not unlike general medicine in the first half of the 20th century when the diagnosis was based a lot on uh, just uh, subjective descriptions of the illness. It is fairly safe to assume that objective tests are on the way and there will be no law, not, not long before psychiatric illness will also be diagnosed based on objective tests. Uh, probably imaging tests, not blood tests, but imaging tests, which will be used in addition, of course, to subjective description of symptoms by the patient. So let's take these five groups of psychoactive medications one by one. Antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, mood stabilizers, and miscellaneous. What do you need? What uh, do you uh, need to know about antipsychotics? Is they they are meant mostly to prevent or decrease psychotic symptoms. What does that mean? Psychotic symptoms are delusions, hallucinations, marked disorganization of thought. By delusions, we mean faulty, irrational interpretations or beliefs about the reality that are very resistant to any logical argumentation. Uh, this definition may, though, lead naturally to the question, what if I believe in uh, Jesus having visited the United States and while here, uh, him writing some instructions on plates made of gold and buried them, for a person, a chosen person, to discover them 2,000 years later and start a new flavor of Christianity. Well, yeah, what, what if I believe that? Does that mean that I'm delusional? No, not really. Any belief which is shared by a large number of people is not considered delusional, whether it can be proven or not, whether it is rational or not, provided that this belief does not lead to behavioral aberrations uh, to decisions that can bring harm to the individual or to inability to function in a multitude of uh, roles as an individual is, is expected uh, in the society. Now, let's go to hallucinations. Hallucinations are easier to understand. They are perceptions without a stimulus. The vast majority of hallucinations we are dealing with in psychiatry are auditory hallucinations. That means people hearing voices without anybody talking around them. Disorganized thinking is another psychotic symptoms, a symptom that can be rather difficult to detect in its more subtle forms, but uh, pretty easy to notice in its more severe forms. Thought disorganization can range to subtle deviations from the goals of thinking to incoherence as manifested through speech that does not make any sense. All these symptoms are addressed by antipsychotic medications, which are of two kinds, typicals and atypicals. This demarcation comes from the fact that uh, 
The initial substances with antipsychotic properties were noted to have a strong blocking effect of the dopamine receptors of the kind called D2. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. That means a molecule used by certain neurons in certain areas of the brain to communicate with each other. Dopamine exerts its action on the downstream neuron by latching onto several kinds of receptors. These are specialized proteins that have a binding site on them where dopamine attaches like a lock in a key. There are subtypes of receptors for dopamine numbered from 1 through 4. The typical neuroleptics are like covers for these keyholes. They do not open the lock. They just prevent the real key, the dopamine, from accessing and opening or activating these receptors. The typical antipsychotics block mostly, although not exclusively, the type 2 dopamine receptors. This strong blockade of dopamine type 2 receptors is believed to be the reason for their therapeutic effect. Later down the road, around late 1990s, a medication called clozapine was discovered. It was found to be extremely effective in the treatment of psychotic symptoms, despite the fact that it uh, had a very weak blockade of dopamine type 2 receptors. Therefore, this discovery started a new class of antipsychotic called the atypical antipsychotics, since they all have in common a rather weak blockade of the typical uh, target of the uh, new, uh, previous neuroleptics, the D2 type of receptors. The old generation of uh, uh, typical neuroleptics are uh, divided in three groups, low, medium and high potency neuroleptics. That means uh, their potency of uh, blocking the dopamine D2 receptors. So let's see, I'm going to recite to you just some of them, not all, just uh, to have a rough idea what used to be the most popular ones out there in the clinical work. By the way, all the names of medications are given to you as uh, a double name. First, the generic name, and second, the most popular of the brand names. Each of these medications has uh, one generic name and sometimes several brand names. Let me just discuss with you a little bit long more about this process of naming medications. The way the pharmaceutical companies name these substances is like this. First, there is a chemical name that does not involve any creativity. It is just an enumeration of the attributes of a molecule according to fixed rules. These names are difficult to remember, difficult to pronounce. They involve numbers and letters. But then there is an abbreviated chemical name, unique to that substance, where the discoverer does have some liberty to be creative, and uh, it will give a unique name to that substance. And finally, there is a third layer of names, the brand name, where the company goes wild, let's lose its uh, imagination, uh, with, uh, in my opinion, mixed results. Some of these brand names are really very good, almost poetic, like Serentil or Halcyon. Some of them are kind of ridiculous, like Abilify or Simbalta. Let me give you an example so you understand what I'm speaking about. Let's take Parnate. Parnate, an antidepressant. This is the brand name, by the way. Its chemical name is 1R 
asterisk, comma, two, S, asterisk, close parenthesis, dash, two, dash, phenyl, cyclopropane, dash, one, dash, amine. Very dry, isn't it? Well, the abbreviated name, the also chemical name, but abbreviated name, is still a tongue twister. Tranylcypromine. Tranylcypromine. And finally, the brand name, which kind of rolls off the tongue, uh, we, and is uh, Parnate. Parnate. Okay, so let's go back to our story about neuroleptics. Neuroleptics are divided, as uh, I was saying, in three groups, low, medium, and high potency, according to their ability to block the dopamine D2 receptors. So we have chlorpromazine or torazine, in the, uh, sorry, we have in the low potency group, torazine, chlorpromazine, tyridazine, melaril, mesoridazine, serentil. In the medium potency group, we have loxapine, loxitane, molindone, Moban, Perfenazine, Trilafon, Tiotixane, Navane. Now, um, finally, in the high potency group, we have Haloperidol, Haldol, Flufenazine, Prolixin. The new generation of atypicals are an expanding group that can be divided into two subgroups, what I call the 1.0 generation and 1.1 generation. They share all pretty much the same characteristics, but they came on the market in two waves, several years apart. The generation 1.0, for example, is comprised of clozapine, clozaril, amisulpride, solian, sulpiride, eglonil, risperdal, risperidone, olanzapine, zyprexa, zyprexidon, geodon. To the generation 1.1 belong Aripiprazole abilify, asenapine safris, iloperidone fanapt, luracidone latuda, paliperidone in vega, and quetiapine seroquel. Now the second class of uh, medications, the antidepressants. Now the second class of medications, the antidepressants. This class contains medications that uh, most of them are first choice in the treatment of a variety of anxiety disorders as well. So the name of the class remains antidepressant, but uh, this leads to occasional confusion. When a patient has a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, it will sound to him or her counterintuitive to end up with a recommendation to take an antidepressant. The question that often follows is, if I have an um, anxiety disorder, why would I take an uh, antidepressant? Why not an anti-anxiety medication? Well, uh, it happens that the antidepressants are first-line defense against anxiety as well. While other, the other way around is not true. That means the anxiety and anti-anxiety medications are not antidepressants. The antidepressants are divided into four subgroups. The first subgroup are the first generation antidepressants called tricyclics and tetracyclic antidepressants. They are no less effective than the newer generation of antidepressants 
And uh, I even myself, sometimes I am taken by surprise um, when a depressed patient who did not respond to any new cutting-edge so-called antidepressants miraculously improve on an antidepressant uh, which is old, almost written off as uh, outmoded. The mechanism of action of these old antidepressants is usually mixed. Reuptake inhibition of serotonin and norepinephrine, usually. To understand this mechanism, you have to remember what I just said a few minutes before. Neurons communicate with each other by spraying each other with substances called neuromediators. Two of them are serotonin and norepinephrine. Few milliseconds after being sprayed out of the neuron, these neuromediators are also taken back into the neuron by a vacuuming action like a pump sucking back into the original neuron the same serotonin and norepinephrine molecules that were just released. So serotonin or norepinephrine, depending on the neuron, has few milliseconds to do its job of stimulating the downstream neuron before it is yanked out of the synaptic space and uh, restored back into the vesicles where it came from. These are some examples of such antidepressants. Amitriptyline elavil, chromipramine anafranil, desipramine norpramine, doxepine sinequan, imipramine tofranil, nortriptyline pamelor, trimipramine surmontil. So, um, also, uh, also within this uh, subgroup of old antidepressants, we have a sub-subgroup called monoaminoxidase, uh, in, uh, monoaminoxidase inhibitors. If you paid attention before, I mentioned that the reuptake of neuromediators uh, is the main strategy to ensure that the neuromediators are removed fast out of the synaptic space so they do not wreak havoc with the downstream neurons. This suction phenomenon does inactivate most but not all of the neuromediator molecules. Some of them, they do escape outside the synaptic space and they could continue to cause some trouble from there if it weren't for the presence of an enzyme called monoaminoxidase or MAO. These uh, enzymes, because there are several classes of uh, monoaminoxidase or monoaminoxidases, are inhibited by antidepressants from the class of monoaminoxidase inhibitors, or MAOI. This is a sizable group of medication, uh, and since there are two types of monoaminoxidase, A and B, the group is divided into selective monoaminoxidase A inhibitors, selective monoaminoxidase B inhibitors, and non-selective monoaminoxidase inhibitors. In the United States, we use only three of them, all non-selective. Isocarboxazine, Marplan, Phenalzine, Nardil, which are from the chemical group of hydralazines, and Tranilcypromine or Parnate from the non-hydralazine group. I'm still going to mention a, a, a fourth one. I said there are only three, but in fact there are four. Selegiline is the fourth, or MSAM, which is, select, is a selective monoaminoxidase B inhibitor. Selegiline is an anti-Parkinson medication. But um, the producers of uh, this substance, they found a way to rise the blood level of this uh, medication to, to such an extent that it becomes a monoaminoxidase A inhibitor as well. So theoretically it's a selective monoaminoxidase B inhibitor, but at high dosages it can inhibit the monoaminoxidase A as well, and that's where the relevance for psychiatry is. I. Uh, did not even want to include this uh, selegiline or MSAM 
um, because uh, it's very rarely used nowadays. But let's see. Um, the enzyme monoaminoxidase A is uh, relevant to psychiatry because this subtype uh, is responsible for me the metabolism of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So um, these are the three neuromediators which are implicated in uh, the genesis of uh, depression and also anxiety disorders. So um, we are uh, still now uh, in the old subgroup. Oh, sorry, uh, in an old group, but now we are going to discuss another sub subgroup. And uh, these are um, a variety of uh, antidepressants that either have uh, no reuptake inhibition as the main mechanism of action or act on other neuromediators than serotonin. To this sub subgroup, the following antidepressants belong. We have bupropion or welbutrin which acts like a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. Then we have trazadone desirel, which directly stimulates a sub-variety of serotonin receptors called the 5H22A, 5H2A, uh, which are located on the downstream neuron. And then we have mirtazapine or remeron, which inhibits the presynaptic alpha-2 receptors, therefore depriving the upstream neuron from the negative feedback of the presence of norepinephrine in the synaptic space. Therefore, the upstream neuron continues to flood the synapses with, uh, with the nor uh, norepinephrine, not understanding that it is already enough of it. Enough, though, with the sub-subgroups. Let's move to a brand new subgroup the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So do not forget we are still in the antidepressant group and we are at the subgroup of serotonin reuptake inhibitors or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors abbreviated SSRIs. This is the most popular group of antidepressants. Their action is to inhibit the reabsorption of serotonin. These medications are called selective because they act only on serotonin and nothing else. While they are very discriminative when it comes to what they do, they are not at all discriminative regarding where they do it. This is the reason for side effects. When they act on the neurons of the dorsal rafe nuclei, a group of nuclei in the midbrain, they cause their intended effect, the reversing of depressive symptoms. But they act also on the intestines, causing nausea, cramps, on the platelets, causing easy bruising, and on other places in the brain, causing tremors, restlessness, vivid dreams, and other problems. However, as a class of antidepressants, these substances are far safer than the previous generation, the tricyclic and tetracyclic antidepressants, which they practically replaced. And why is that? Because the tricyclic and tetracyclic antidepressants can be lethal in overdose, while the selective serotonin inhibitors are quite safe. Examples of these SSRIs are fluoxetine, Prozac, sertraline, Zoloft, paroxetine, Paxil, citalopram, Selexa, S-citalopram, Lexapro. Uh, and uh, finally, the third subgroup of antidepressants, the mixed serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors, SNRI, SNRI. That means substances that affect in the same time norepinephrine, and serotonin through the same mechanism, like SSRIs. That means reuptake inhibition of these two neuromediators. Uh, 
to this group belong venlafaxin effexor, desvenlafaxin pristic, and duloxetin cymbalta. If uh, we are anyway speaking about antidepressant medication, we must mention here quite a strong trend in the treatment of depression. This is a new style of uh, adding a medication to an antidepressant to amplify its efficacy. These medications are not in themselves antidepressants, but when added to one, they lead to a better antidepressant response. For example, methylfolate deplin, aripiprazole abilify, lithium, and others. They each have some logic behind their use, but uh, most of them are used because of empirical evidence that they improve the efficacy of the antidepressants. So not necessarily because we understand why they do what they do, but because we know that when they are added to an antidepressant, you will see a uh, more robust effect. So we talked about the antidepressant group. Now let's turn our attention to the next group, the anti-anxiety medication. This group is mostly comprised of benzodiazepines, but there is also a small subgroup of non-benzodiazepine anti-anxiety medications. Well, the good old benzodiazepines. We have a saying in uh, Romanian that fits very well this group. They are known like a speckled horse. What does that mean? It's like someone who is famous but more notorious than famous, someone about uh, uh, you cannot decide whether you uh, love him or hate him. No question that these medications are very efficient, very prompt, immediate in their action, very selective in addressing anxiety without causing too much sedation when, uh, they, uh, they, when you get them in the right dose. But their qualities are also their downfall. They are just too good, too effective. People like too much their effect and for some of them uh, they become like a scent trap for golfers. You get stuck with them. You can't live without them. The irony is that they replace another notorious group of substances, the barbiturates, which uh, do pretty much the same thing. But the barbiturates also can kill and because they do so in a rather silent manner they ended up with the undesirable honor to be the number one on the list of medication people use to kill themselves. So they are safe, but they are still to be regarded with great suspicion, and their use must be closely watched. There are many things to be said about this group of substances, but in summary they act by enhancing the action of a neuromediator called gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, GABA. This is a neuromediator used by widely spread small neurons found all over the central nervous system, who have the task to make sure that this enormous mass of one trillion neurons, all of them sparking electric signals, do not end up in a frenzy of electrical activity usually manifesting itself clinically through seizures. There are over 30 benzodiazepines and uh, uh, the list is growing. I found in my own practice that all of them are pretty similar with each other. The only clinical characteristics that uh, vary are the degree of sedation they cause. Some of them are more sedated than others, or more precisely, as you go up with the dose, some of them become sedative before uh, they become anti-anxiety medications, or slightly above that limit, while others have an anti-anxiety effect far before they become sedative. A second difference is their duration of action. The duration of action can vary from ultra-short, couple of hours, to a whole week. Uh, to be fair, a whole week doesn't necessarily mean that you are under the influence of that uh, medication for a whole week, but metabolic 
compounds of the initial substance are still lingering in the bloodstream for a whole week. Uh, and some of them still have some weak effect, but uh, not as powerful as you feel uh, in the first few hours after taking the medication. Finally, a detail that must be known uh, mostly by clinicians, uh, they also differ through their metabolic pathways. Some of them are heavily dependent on the liver to be metabolized, either other are much less dependent on the liver and much more on the kidney. Therefore, liver problems and age can affect markedly how long they stick around in the body and indirectly what dose should be used in someone who has an impaired liver function. So let me recite to you some of these medications which uh, I'm sure is going to uh, resonate with many of the listeners. Lorazepam Ativan, Flurazepam Dalmain, Estazolam Doral, Triazolam Halcyon, Midazolam Versed, Temazepam Restoril, Chlordiazepoxide Librium, Chlorazepatranxine, Diazepam Valium, Oxazepam Serex, Alprazolam Xanax, Clonazepam Clonopin. Well, I must confess that uh, these people who worked on the names of these medications were really very inspired. Most of them sound rather elegant, some of them outright poetic, like Halcyon. Few people know that Halcyon is a mythical bird that stays in the air all its life. It lands on the sea only once and uh, only when the waters are at a complete standstill. Therefore, the days of the Halcyon uh, is an expression meant to denote a time of serenity and calm. There are though other medications uh, that uh, are anti-anxiety medications, but they do not belong to the class of benzodiazepines. Now, when I am talking about whether a medication is or is not an anti-anxiety medication, I mean one of two things. Uh, first, they are either approved by the FDA or they have a uh, off-label indication for anxiety disorder. Now, let's see. The FDA approval. FDA stands for Food and Drug Administration. Every new medication has to be approved by this forum and each claim that the manufacturer wants to make about a certain medication must be supported by double-blind placebo-controlled studies which FDA examines to make sure that they are properly conducted. So the manufacturer presents a voluminous application accompanied by supporting evidence in order to get the FDA blessing. But aside from that, there is uh, even a more sizable amount of evidence produced by researchers all over the world supporting all sorts of other claims of efficacy in many other areas than what the F uh, FDA approved the medication for. But since there is no economic incentive for someone to organize this body of evidence in a neat package and present it to the FDA, it ends up in a category called off-label indications. So a medication can end up classified as an anti-anxiety medication either if it has the FDA blessing or if there is support from non-FDA submitted studies but published in peer-reviewed journals. Well, so let's go back to our subject, the non-benzodiazepine anti-anxiety medications. Uh, these are barbiturates and related substances, which are themselves a whole nice little colorful story, but too long for us to go into it right now. Then we have the non-benzodiazepines and the non-GABA related substances, because barbiturates uh, and similar medications are still 
uh, they still have in common the same mechanism of action as the benzodiazepines, that means uh, an effect on the GABA receptors. And now we have the non-benzodiazepines and non-GABA related substances like hydroxyzine visaril, buspirone, buspar. Well, hanging there esteemed audience, we are now at the next big group, the mood stabilizers. So we discussed antipsychotics, we discussed antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and now we are discussing the mood stabilizers. Again, we have a similar problem. One of the best mood stabilizers are not even called mood stabilizers, but they are in fact the antipsychotic medications we have already discussed. The antipsychotics are in some respects even better than the mood stabilizers proper, since they act faster and they help in the same time psychotic symptoms that sometimes accompany especially the manic phase of uh, a bipolar illness, most stabilizers being mostly used for this illness. Now, um, let's go back to the mood stabilizers proper. Uh, these are uh, practically divided into two groups, two subgroups again. On one side is a subgroup with one representative, lithium, which is the granddaddy of all mood stabilizers and the simplest medication in psychiatry. On the other side, there are the anti-seizure mood stabilizers. But uh, let's uh, come back to lithium. Uh, lithium is uh, an element. It's not a molecule. You can get lithium by just digging a hole in the ground. But sometimes you don't even need to dig that hole because it, uh, it's pretty much uh, on the surface. So there is not a molecule uh, concocted by some mad scientist in uh, a laboratory full of uh, alembics and... Uh, graduated cylinders. As if this uh, presentation is not complicated enough, uh, let me show you a little bit how complicated medicine can be. In order to understand lithium, you must know how it does what it does. You must know about the second messenger system. Oh, okay, so there's a second messenger system. What is the first messenger system? Well, you know about the first messenger system. When a neuron receives some electrical message from outside, a first messenger, messenger, a neuromediator, which we already mentioned, acts on a receptor, a protein floating in the neuronal membrane, the double layer of lipoproteins I have already mentioned. Once the receptor is activated, several things can happen. Either calcium, potassium, sodium, ion gradients across the membrane change, or another molecule inside the cell passes from an inactive into an active form and carries the message further inside the cell. This system is called the second messenger system. It is called a system because the second messengers are a varied bunch of substances, including cyclic adenosine monophosphate, inositol triphosphate, diacylglycerol, even calcium ions. Now, the second messenger messengers in their turn activate a third messenger system, which are usually enzymes or protein kinases that finally get to influence a target intracellular process like gene activation or production of a variety of proteins. Lithium interacts with the second and third messenger systems with the end result of lowering the activity of the neuron. I'm not going to go any further than this and I did not include the above references for you to actually understand or get some benefit from, but just to convince you that, uh, of the complexity of the medical field. And remember that making medical decisions on your own is like a 
socialite that lived all his life in New York City ventures in the Amazon jungle on his own. Yes, it can be a fascinating jungle full of wonderful experiences, but it may end up uh, uh, in a, a very high price to be paid if uh, there is no guide in this jungle. As I said, uh, all uh, the anti, uh, moon stabilizers besides lithium are anti-seizure medications. Well, here it goes again, you might say. Why all this confusion? Antidepressants are anti-anxiety medications as well. The anti-anxiety medications are not antidepressant. Now, the mood stabilizer are also anti-seizure medications, but all the anti-seizure medications, um, do not all of anti-seizure medications have a mood stabilizing effect. First, let's look at the issue of why medication have a mood stabilizing effect. The anti-seizure medication prevents abnormal and generalized electrical activity of uh, the neuron. Seizures are massive discharges of electricity that result in loss of awareness and consciousness, most of them accompanied by abnormal violent muscular activity. Mood flare-ups, either extreme elation, euphoria, like in manic state, or anger, like in intermittent explosive disorder, are very similar. Somewhere in the areas that are associated with emotions, there is an abnormally high level of activity. The anti-seizure medication usually acts uh, by preventing the rapid exchanges of ions between the inside and the outside of neuron, characteristic for the state of electrical excitation of that neuron. When these substances are bathing the neurons, they become far less likely to trigger electrical signals. The clinical uh, result is a equanimity of the mood an uh, emotional state that is close to indifference, relaxation, detachment, or non-reactivity to outside events. Of course, I have to make sure that you understand that this is not some path to nirvana. These changes are rather subtle, gradual, so do not rush to call the drug dealer for a hit of Depakote or Tegretol because you will feel very disappointed. If I already let the cat out of the bag, let me name some names. Which are these mood stabilizers? So we have valproic acid, Depakote, carbamazepine, Tegretol, oxcarbazepine, Trileptal, lamotrigine, Lamictal, topiramate, Topomax. I'm not going to add to this list gabapentin, Neurontin, but I'm going to bring it up since Pfizer, the manufacturer of this anti-seizure medication, paid $430 million to settle a lawsuit alleging that it promoting this medication illegally as a mood stabilizer. But uh, after that happened, another round of litigation followed, alleging that not only it promoted it without medical evidence, but it also rigged or suppressed evidence of the contrary, that it actually doesn't work as a mood stabilizer. Well, you're looking at these lawsuits and uh, you wonder who is the bigger villain, Pfizer for uh, lying or uh, the trial lawyers who lined up their pockets since I doubt that any of the patients prejudiced by this medication received anything. And even if they would receive something, what exactly was the prejudice? The co-payment that they paid for the medication, probably $10, $25 maximum? Uh, is it um, wasting the time with false cures? Well, I'm not in the position of answering this. As you see, medicine is the quintessential science, but in such a complex reality, uncertainty is unavoidable. 
Well, we are uh, finally at the end. The colorful category of miscellaneous. What should we put in this melting pot? Well, we should definitely start with anti-ADD medication. ADD means attention deficit disorder, in case you lived uh, in a utopian land where all the kids listen to their parents and get perfect grades in school, you must have heard of ADD. Everybody who thinks of ADD thinks of amphetamines. But since the amphetamines are the other speckled horse of psychiatry, I'm going to give center stage to another medication first. Atomoxetine or Stratera, which should be, in my opinion, always the first line of treatment. Stratera is not an amphetamine, not a stimulant, it's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It predominantly affects the frontal lobe where the trouble in ADD is actually located. In a way, it's a smarter medication since it increases the activity of norepinephrine in the frontal lobe, exactly where the problem is, without increasing the activity of the whole cortex like the amphetamines. Now, Stratera has some advantages like uh, its duration of action that stretches the whole day and night, not worsening anxiety, which uh, uh, sometimes can be a pre-existing condition or a co-existing condition, and uh, not being addictive. But there are some disadvantages as well. It takes a long time until it starts having its therapeutic effect, several weeks or even a couple of months since it, can, uh, it cannot be studied straight away at an effective dose, can pass by without say, uh, seeing much of an effect. The rate of titration, uh, titration is slow in order to avoid side effects. So there are some drawbacks. But then uh, there are the medications that affect predominantly the hyperactivity component of ADD, which sometimes accompanies attention deficit disorder, actually changing the name from ADD to ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. These medications are guanfacine Tanex or Intuniv, that's a, Intuniv is another brand name for guanfacine, and clonidine catapress. Now, only for adults with ADD, there is also the option to use antidepressants that have a mechanism of action either similar with amphetamines like Welbutrin or similar to Stratera like Effexor. There are even some tricyclic antidepressants that have shown efficacy in treating adult ADD. Finally, let's talk about the group of amphetamines. They are a close second to benzodiazepines in terms of causing headaches to psychiatrists. Their use must be always carefully watched since most of the users of this medication are kids in high school or college. And uh, while patients themselves rarely abuse them, they are prone to be stolen or exchanged for other addictive substances or uh, just sold for money. There are several problems related to these drugs. Um, but first, the good part. They are well tolerated, immediate in their action, safe when taken as recommended. Uh, the problem is that they last anywhere between four to eight hours, which might be okay for children and adolescents, but insufficient for an adult who needs uh, his or her ability to pay attention pretty much all the time while awake. Then there is the issue of diversion. On college campuses, these substances are easy to obtain, and the best place to buy them is, uh, guess where, library. But there is a twist to the story. College kids appear to take them not for their euphoric effect, which is probably far less intense than other street drugs, but more for their ability to increase the energy level, the ability to stay awake for long hours and study, possibly even for their ability to speed up memorization of the test material. It is possible that the amphetamines improve cognitive 
abilities in uh, even people who do not suffer of ADD. But this is not well documented by scientific studies, at least not as now, not as of now. But there are studies on the way to clarify once and for all if uh, this is an imaginary or a real effect. Though such studies are pretty difficult since improving cognitive performance in people without ADD is somewhat crossing the line into cosmetic psychiatry or another term people use, personality design. These studies are as difficult as studying the possible benefits of steroid use in high-performance athletes. You see, what's the utility of uh, such studies? You know that they are never going to be used uh, for uh, that intended purposes, the steroids or even the amphetamines. Certainly is that uh, I see far, uh, far fewer patients in my practice who seem to have an addiction to amphetamines as opposed to benzodiazepines. Now, which are these amphetamines? They are divided roughly in two groups. There are other classes as well, but two uh, largest groups, let's say, are the methylphenidate group and the dextroamphetamine group. The methylphenidate group contains brand names as the good old Ritalin and some variations on, uh, on this theme, like metadate, methylene, focaline, deitrana. They're essentially methylphenidate molecule with some twists. The dextroamphetamine group is found in such brand names as Dexedrine, Adderall, Desoxine, Vyvanse. Finally, let's move to the last small but growing group of medications, the ones meant to treat addiction. For alcohol, we have a Camprosate Campral, a medication that interferes with the pleasure caused by alcohol ingestion, therefore helping patients quit. A similar but uh, slightly different mechanism of action is Naltrexone or Revia and its long-lasting intramuscular injection variety called Vivitrol. Then there is the good old disulfiram or antabuse, which blocks the enzyme acetaldehyde, therefore causing accumulation of acetaldehyde in uh, the system of the people who drink. Acetaldehyde causes patients to feel nauseated, to have a terrible headache, so it is hoped that uh, they will learn to hate alcohol. This idea, while logical in practice, did not hold water. Since patients who um, are hit by cravings for alcohol, they just uh, simply stop the antibuse for a day or two and then they are good to go, good to start drinking again. Finally, a few words about Suboxone, a medication that blocks and partially stimulates the opioid receptors, therefore making the need to abuse opioids like heroin or uh, Oxycontin or uh, other opioids uh, painkillers unnecessary. Pretty much like methadone, but not restricted to methadone programs and uh, allowed to be prescribed by MDs in private practice as long as they go through a process of certification. A very successful medication, I would say. Well, here it is. This is a bird's eye view of uh, psychiatric medication. Do not forget the field is much more complex that might appear from this presentation, so do not take uh, your cousin's uh, or grandpa's psychiatric medication because you do not want to see a psychiatrist and be slapped with a uh, label of mental illness. This practice has a lot of pitfalls and often goes nowhere, since there are many subtleties when it comes to proper use of psychiatric medication, which uh, sometimes only psychiatrists can advise about. I'm by no means implying that psychiatry is some kind of obscure, difficult to understand field. On the contrary, it is nowadays a very straightforward, logical body of knowledge. But you just uh, have to put the effort and time to learn it.